All right, we are in week three of Another in the Fire. Welcome all you watching online. If you've missed part one or part two, this study in Daniel has been incredible. We're seeing God as bigger. And the bigger we see God, the more calm we get when the world around us gets crazy, which, you know, is happening right now and will happen in our lives. But our God is in control. Well, there's times in all our lives when life doesn't go the way we had it planned. And I want to show you a clip of my daughter, Zoe. It's actually a clip I showed you guys once before. We uploaded it to our favorite TV show, America's Funniest Videos. We uploaded it at AFV.com. It didn't get chosen for the TV show, but apparently they picked it for their social media feed. They had this montage of all these funny moments, and one of our friends messaged my wife on Facebook and said, hey, did you see that Zoe and Evie are on AFV? Go ahead and take a look. By the way, this isn't Zoe at the beginning. She'll, that, that's not her. She's <laughs> Did you fall? There she is. Yeah, one day she had jumped off the playhouse and her dress had gotten caught on it. And isn't that life, right? It, life just does not always go the way we want life to go. And it's the same when we set out to follow God and we start to choose God in our lives. There are blessings, there are rewards, but there are also times when we do the right thing and it doesn't go the way we thought it would. Uh, Zoe, actually her name comes from a word that Jesus used for the word life. Jesus once said, I've come that you might have life and have life to the full. This is God's heart for you. God's not out to hate on you or judge you or shame you. God wants to give you life if you will come to Christ and just admit that you need it. And that word life in Greek is the word zoe. So zoe actually means life. She brings life wherever she goes. I was thinking this last week about a time right after Zoe was born. Here's a picture of me holding her when she was a little baby. And this was right after I had left my career in journalism. My wife and I, I had been going to seminary really as a hobby, and I'd been leading some small groups, and there was this church of 40 people that uh, called us to come be their pastor. So we left, uh, we moved away from Scottsdale, Arizona. We had a home there. We sold that, and we moved up into the mountains of Arizona. It was one of those times where we really kind of dramatically said, okay, God, we're walking away from the health insurance and everything else. We're going to follow you. We don't know how long these 40 people are going to be able to pay us or how much they're going to be able to pay us, but we're going to trust you. And we got up there and God started to grow the church. But as God started to grow the church, I started to get a health condition uh, called a hemiplegic migraine. And I won't bore you with the details, but the bottom line is like any migraine, you can get it anytime unpredictably, but it has stroke symptoms. So half my body would go numb and weak. Um, I would lose my ability to speak. Um, and I say would because thankfully I, I don't have them very often anymore. And they're much lighter when I have them now. But there was a season right after Zoe was born, when they just kept getting worse and worse. And I was having to go to the hospital for them. And very often, even after I would leave the hospital, my brain would just be hazy afterwards. And one day I was meeting with a neurologist who specialized in these really rare headaches. And he said, you know, John, um, you should know that as you get older, these stroke-like symptoms, if they keep getting worse, there's a chance for some people that essentially they do end up having a stroke and they stay kind of stuck in that, you know, condition where parts of their brain and body don't work. And for me, it created this great anxiety because the, the episodes were painful enough as it was. But as a young dad, 
I started to think, you know, what's going to happen if I end up getting disabled? And I remember thinking, you know, when I was a journalist living this great life in Scottsdale, writing auto reviews, I was driving a different brand new car every week that I'd write about for one of the newspapers I wrote for. It's like, you know, I wasn't having these health problems then. And now I'm following God. I'm like trying to do his will. And I knew God hadn't betrayed me or anything, but I felt just confused. Can anyone relate to that feeling at all? I mean, maybe your scenario is not quite that dramatic, but it's like, you know, I chose to start giving to God's work financially, and then the very next week, the transmission goes out on the car, doesn't it? Or we chose to really start working on our marriage, and then it's like, oh my goodness, this stuff came out that I didn't even know my spouse was doing. If I just hadn't known that, it would have been easier. We decide, I'm going to do it God's way, and it gets harder. And that's the question we're wrestling with today is this, when choosing God could cost you, how do you move forward? When choosing God could cost you, and I want to encourage you right now to just open up your heart to God and allow him to identify an area. Maybe you have chosen him and you've stepped out and now it's starting to cause some pain and you're wondering, how do I keep moving forward? Others of you, I know there's been a battle going on in your heart and in your mind and you try to push it away, distract yourself with shopping or entertainment or social media or whatever else. But every time you come here and God starts to speak through his word, this one issue comes up and you got this little civil war going on in your heart. How do I know that? Because I have those all the time, okay? It's very normal. So maybe you've already chose God or maybe you're still deciding, am I? going to choose God in this area. Would you identify what that thing is in your life so we can answer this question for you? How do you move forward? And I'm not just going to say, just choose God, okay? We're going to get specific. How do you move forward in that issue? Do you have something identified in your life? Can I see some head nods? Some head nods? Okay. Well, let's find God's answer to this question in Daniel chapter 3. It starts in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, here's a picture of the plain of Dura. I won't totally nerd out on you guys. I just want you to know this is a real place. This big plain where this story happened, it's still there. You can go visit it today. It's in Iraq, the country of Iraq today. In fact, on this plain, archaeologists have found a large pedestal for a massive statue. And some archaeologists believe it's the very statue from this story. We don't know that for sure. But let's continue in verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar sends out this message to all his important people. And he says, I want you all to come to the dedication of this statue that I'm setting up. Verse 4, then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of all these different instruments, bow down to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. So I want you to picture a vast open field and about a million people surrounding this golden statue and the sun is shining down and gleaming off it. These musicians are placed all around the circle so that even though there weren't speakers, you're getting this surround sound effect of all these very powerful horns and stringed instruments. And here's the condition, verse 6. Anyone who refuses to obey, we're going to know if you don't bow down because you'll be popping up out of the crowd, you will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. True story. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, they all bow down to the ground. Can you imagine kind of the, 
the goosebumps, when you're at a live music performance and you get goosebumps, right? This music is around and everyone is doing the same thing. Can you imagine the amount of peer pressure that's there? They all bow to the ground and worship this statue, but we're gonna see three godly young men who didn't. Why didn't they? Because the God we worship, Jesus Christ, who's one with the Father, says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have, you shall have no other gods before me. And so they're going to obey him, and then they get ratted on. Verse 8, some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on these Jews who wouldn't bow down. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king, but you need to know, verse 12, there's some Jews. In fact, we can give you their specific names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know, you've put them in charge of Babylon. They should be representing you, but they pay no attention to you. In fact, verse 12 they refuse to serve your gods. When everyone else is bowing down and worshiping, they do not worship the gold statue that you've set up. Well, Nebuchadnezzar brings them in, and in verse 14, he says this, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I mean, I've given you guys your homes, everything you've got is from me, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I've set up. Verse 15, he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to give you one more chance to bow down. And when you hear the musical instruments, you know, do the dance. Verse 15, if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. So I just want you right now to move from thinking of this as a story to just putting yourself there physically. I mean, this is a real king with real armed soldiers. You can see the blazing furnace. And wouldn't most of us be kind of starting to rationalize in our minds, right? Like, well, I mean, God knows my heart, right? Like I could just kind of bow on the outside, but inside, right? Isn't that what a lot of us would be doing? And let's look at how these guys respond. And, and actually, Nebuchadnezzar, look at the end of this. He says, if I throw you into my blazing furnace, what God could save you? Well, they say in verse 16, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. And then verse 17 if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. I just want you to really grasp that for a moment. They're saying our God can do the impossible. Go ahead and throw us into the furnace. We know he could save us. That's how bold our faith is. He will rescue us from your power. But the whole point of the passage is this verse right here, 18. Even if he doesn't. We know our God. Our God's bigger than you. Our God's bigger than your furnace. You can throw us right in there. He can put a force field around us. That's how big our God is. But also, our God's so big, we don't get to tell him what to do. And so, even if he doesn't save us, even if you throw us in there and our skin starts to melt and we're smelling our hair burn, we're not gonna ever serve your God. Just making it super clear to you. Our God is bigger than you. He could save us. But even if he doesn't, we are loyal to him. And so we'll never bow down to another God. Now, I want to return to this question. When choosing God could cost you, how do you move forward? And I want to invite you to resurface that area in your life where you have chosen to, God, to worship God or to do it God's way, or you're debating on the civil war battleground of your heart. Am I going to choose God? when it could cost you. It might cost you some popularity with some friends. It might cost you some financial security. 
It might cost you a whole bunch of time. It might cost you some pride. It might cost you some ego. When it will cost you, how do you move forward? Here's what we saw in the text. First, you declare God can do a miracle. Even if I prioritize God financially and my pay goes down, God's bigger than all that and he'll take care of me. He can do a miracle, but then you say this, I decide even if he doesn't, I'm going to worship him. Right? This marriage, this marriage looks dead beyond hope. I know God could raise it to life. So I'm going to do my part and keep investing in this thing that seems dead because God could raise it to life. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to be loyal to him. Does that make sense? Is there an area in your life where the Holy Spirit right now is like, yeah, you need to declare God can do a miracle here and you need to decide even if he doesn't, I'm still going to trust in him. I told you that story about those hemiplegic stroke-like headaches that I used to get so often. Because for me, that was a fork in the road moment in my life. There was a specific moment where I was laying in a hospital bed and half my body was just burning in pain. In my mouth, I couldn't form words, but I could still think. I just couldn't get them out of my mouth. And I remember just this, it was this fork in the road of knowing, God, I know you can heal me. I know you have that power. I don't doubt it, but you haven't. And it was this decisive moment in my life of I was either going to say, you know what? Enough with serving God. Like, it's just too much. Just going to go back to my easier job, make a good living, live in the sun, whatever. It was this fork in the road moment where for me, I, I just, I had to decide, even if he doesn't heal me, will I still be loyal to him? Will I still worship him? And the reason, the reason I say that from my life is this, it's a, it was a massive step up in my faith. I had taken some steps in my faith, but that was, that was a life-defining moment in my faith. I mean, things for me with God have been ever since then, I still have my struggles, of course, but it's like that was a line in the sand where I said, even if you don't heal me, I'm going to serve you. Now, you're here today, and I don't know what your issue is. You know, it might be an early step in your faith. Maybe you're just a few weeks into believing. And the Holy Spirit's starting to say like, hey, that, you know, getting drunk every weekend. There's this verse that says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit instead. And that's like this, this step of saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop doing that because of what the Word of God says. Or, or maybe you're further along and it's like, yeah, it's cancer. And I'm going to pray, God, I, I know you could heal me. I know you could, but even if you don't, I'm going to trust you. Even if you don't heal me, I know that I'm going to have an eternal life with you. I don't know where your battleground is for this decision, but today God's wanting to grow you with an even if he doesn't faith. You know, when I think of even if he doesn't faith, I think of a guy named Moses. Maybe you've heard about Moses. He led God's people out of captivity when they were all slaves in Egypt. When Moses was born, he was this little baby boy, and there was a government order from the Pharaoh of Egypt that every Hebrew boy would be killed immediately at birth. The reason for this is that uh, the Jewish people, God's people, they had grown in number to about a million people, and Pharaoh thought, I'm going to lose control of my slave labor force if it gets much bigger. So he issues this order, they have to kill every boy. It was his birth control plan. 
And Moses' mom, she has this little baby boy. She doesn't know what his future is. And she has to decide in this moment, am I going to worship and obey the Pharaoh who could kill me, my husband, and my family? Or am I going to answer to a higher authority? And so there's not many options that she has, but she decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live like God can do a miracle. And I'm going to decide that even if God doesn't do a miracle, I'll obey him. And so she puts together this little boat out of, you know, out of plants and out of tar. She makes this little floating boat and she puts her baby in there because she can't have him at home. And they place this little floating boat in the Nile River where there's crocodiles and hippopotamuses, and it looks impossible. It looks like there's no way, but she believes God could do a miracle. She's trusting him either way. And then one day, Pharaoh's daughter goes to bathe in the Nile River, and she hears this baby crying. And just like a, a, maybe a, a, a girl today would be driving down the road and see a puppy dog on the side of the road and be like, oh, it's so cute, I want to adopt it. Pharaoh's daughter decides like, oh, that's so cute. I'm going to adopt this, this little pet. Well, Moses' sister is there. And in the moment, she has the faith to say, hey, uh, I know a Hebrew woman who could nurse that baby for you if you want. And Moses' mom ends up getting to nurture him and mother him. And God ends up using him to write the Ten Commandments and to set a nation free and to set in motion the coming of the Messiah all because one mom had faith to say, when things seem way beyond my control, I'm going to declare that my God can do a miracle. And I'm going to decide that even if he doesn't, I'm going to obey him. You know, the situation you're in right now might seem as big as Pharaoh's Egypt. I know there's high schoolers where the peer pressure to do certain things that you know are not what God wants for you, it seems like it's the biggest thing in the world. But you can decide in that moment, you say, God's bigger than my popularity. God's bigger than how people talk about me. God's bigger than any other factor. Sometimes these decisions to declare that God can do a miracle and decide I'm going to worship him even if he doesn't, sometimes they're very public. Other times they're incredibly private. How is it that those three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and Moses' mom, uh, and at a much lower level, me, when I was having those stroke-like symptoms, I said, okay, God, even if you don't heal me, I'm still going to choose you. How, how do you do that? And to answer that question, I want to show you a picture. Some of you will recognize this. This is the tram at Disney. The tram at Disneyland or Disney World. You know, you park in this vast asphalt parking lot, and then you get on the tram. And the tram itself is kind of a neat experience because it's sort of a unique transportation thing. It's got these little fiberglass seats. And for me, when I was laying in that hospital bed, deciding, am I going to keep trusting God even if my health continues to decline? What got me through, and I believe what got Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego through, was this belief that this world is very temporary. Scripture says our life is like a vapor. It blows past. But there's another life coming that is eternal. Now, in a similar way, when you get to Disneyland, you get on this tram, and it's kind of a fun experience in and of itself, right? There's like a narrator with speakers above, and everyone's anticipating and exciting. Uh, and and you, you get to the entrance, there's the tram, and then there's the gates, and then there's the Magic Kingdom, right? 
And you know what Jesus described? Your life is like a vapor. After you breathe your last breath, you'll stand at the gates. And if you've trusted in Christ, you will enter the kingdom of God. Now, here's the thing. If you use that analogy, most of us live like the tram ride is everything, right? It's like, do I have the best seat on the tram? Do I have the, you know, do I have the nicest house? Do I have, how comfortable am I on the tram? But we're all just on a tram right now. And would it really matter if you had the best seat on the tram if when you got to the gates, they're like, yeah, you don't have a ticket. <laughs> right? Right? And how about the flip? It's like, man, I got stuck on the tram between two like really smelly people. And I mean, you know, my tram ride is terrible, but you get there and you've got a ticket. Well, that's okay. It's just the tram ride, right? And I had this moment when I was laying in that hospital bed and I thought through the worst case scenario, even if God doesn't, when this neurologist said, you could have those stroke-like symptoms for the rest of your life and you could get stuck like that. And so I'm like, imagine myself in a wheelchair with Mel pushing me around, you know, thinking like, who would take care of my wife and kids? And you know what God allowed me to see in that moment? If that happened, worst case scenario, 50 years I'm in a wheelchair. I'm just in a wheelchair on the tram, right? As soon as I get to the gates, I'm healed. The worst thing that can happen to me in this life is temporary. And so that allows me to go through difficult stuff because I know that there's a way bigger story. And this is where Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they say, even if the fire burns us, fine. We serve the God of heaven and we're going through the gates into the kingdom. And so do what you want. There's a verse where Jesus says, don't fear humans because all they can do is kill your body. <laughs> what a radical thing to say, right? Because he saw it this way. He's like, don't fear people who can only kill your body. Instead, fear or revere and respect the God who can both kill your body and decide whether or not you get a ticket, kill your soul, or give eternal life to your soul, Jesus says. And so when we see God this way, that he's that big and he's for us, and through my faith in Christ, I'm rightly related to him, then I know anything I go through on the tram, it's just getting me to the gates. And every day of suffering is just one day closer to the kingdom. Well, let's see what happens to these three guys in verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar just loses it, gets furious. His face becomes distorted with rage. He commands the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. And I just want to say here, don't fear people. We love people, but we don't fear people. If you're afraid of ever disappointing anyone in your life, you will, okay? But through Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you'll never disappoint your heavenly father, okay? You have been approved of and you've, you've, you've been approved of through what Christ did on the cross. So when you follow Christ, people will be disappointed with you at times and that, that's okay. So he ties him up, he throws him into the furnace, the next verse says. This is really an interesting moment because we saw in Daniel chapters one and two that Daniel passed the test of will he worship God instead of Nebuchadnezzar? And it was because Daniel passed the test that these three guys got their positions of influence. And now they're going through the test and they're passing it. And the reason I say that is this, we sit in a building that for many of us, other people built it. All of us, we were led to Christ by someone else. Other people passed tests to say, 
I will invest financially in God's kingdom. I will serve in God's kingdom. None of them were perfect, but they faithfully said, we will prioritize God in our lives. And now it falls to us. Now we get tested. And we have to decide, am I going to prioritize God with my life, with my income, with my relationships, with my health? Well, suddenly, after they're thrown in the fire, verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar jumps up in amazement. And he exclaims to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw three men into the furnace? Verse 24, yes, your majesty, that is exactly what we did. (laughs) Verse 25, look, I see four. And they're not tied up. They're free. And they're walking around unharmed, right in the middle of the flames. And the fourth one, looks like a God. King James translates, it looks like the Son of God. It's Jesus the Christ who will be born in Bethlehem 600 years after this, appearing as a Christophany, and it gives believers, this has given believers for thousands of years now, this assurance that when you're in the fire, he's with you. There is another in the fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, verse 28, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted him. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I trust God when I'm healthy and there's money in the bank and the sun is shining and all my circumstances are perfect. It's good to choose to trust God at that time, absolutely, but it's a whole other thing when Choosing to trust God means you go into a fire that you wouldn't go into otherwise. That really proves your faith. These servants trusted him. Verse 29, they defied the king's command. They were willing to die rather than serve or worship any other God. Here's a lesson. In your lifetime, you will be pressured to worship something other than God. Sometimes it's very public. Sometimes it's very private. We will all be pressured to worship something other than God. We'll all be pressured to say, yeah, you know, my beliefs in God aren't that important. I heard a true story that happened this last month with one of our high school students, senior in high school at an area high school, I won't say which one. And he was in his government class, and the government teacher said more or less, "Um, hey, here's all these really really explosive, divisive issues that the nation's divided about right now. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set out each issue, and you all need to vote by standing on one side of the room or the other. Which side of this issue are you on? And it got to an issue where this young man who attends our church felt like the Word of God is very clear. The issue of when a fully formed baby is in its mother's womb, is it right or wrong to go in there and cut that baby apart and take its life? And the teacher said, you know, if you believe that's okay, go to this side of the room. If you believe that's not okay, go to this side of the room. And it just so happened that in this one class, this one student of ours was the only one who went to the side of the room and said, I I believe that's wrong. I believe every human is made in the image of God and has dignity and that taking their life in their mother's womb is murder. He was the only one. And here's the thing, he made that choice, just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, to say, I will choose God when it costs me 
something. And you know what I want to tell you is he stood on that side of the room all by himself. He was not alone. When you stand by yourself, you're not alone. He's with you in the fire. This is also why it's so important that we gather here together and that we're in small groups and even on the live stream that there's the chat on the side because when we see all the other believers, we're reminded, I don't stand alone. The world might make me feel on some issues like I stand alone, but I'm not alone. God's always with me even if I'm physically alone. I also happen to be part of a movement of thousands of other people who, who are with me in following Christ. Now, I tell you that story not to be political. We're not a political church. We don't take political parties or anything like that. But we do side with the Word of God when it's clear on any issue. And we always will because we answer to a much higher power. I wonder, where's God asking you to choose Him? I mean, maybe you're a student and it's very public like it was for that student. Or maybe you're in a season of life where the choice is much more personal Really, only you will know, or only you and your spouse will know. But just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, guess what? Other people are watching. I guarantee you when that one student of ours stood on that side of the room, that there were three or five or 15 on the other side who thought, I should have gone over there. And guess what? If the scenario happens again, I bet a few of them will. People are watching you. Guess what, parents? Your kids are watching you. Your grandkids are watching you. Young people, your, your friends who are also followers of Christ are watching you to see, is anyone else choosing God? And I love it that these three guys, they were in it together. Because what I know in my life is my faith wavers. And sometimes my faith will be down, but someone who I'm closely affiliated with, their faith is up and they hold me up. And then other times their faith is down and I hold them up. This is why God has given us the body. Well, you might be listening to all this and thinking, okay, John, you're saying like, do I worship God or do I worship something else? It sounds so churchy. Like, what do you mean by worship? Here's what I mean. Your loyalty, respect, and fear reveal what you worship, right? Like, what are you loyal to? What do you respect the most? And fear, I don't just mean it as an emotion. Like, yeah, I'm afraid of snakes. It doesn't mean I worship them, okay? But like, what is it that you, you believe holds the most power over you? Is it what people will say about you? Is it how much money you have in the bank? I'll give you an example of this with our puppy, Penny. She's a Labradoodle. She's about a year old. And uh, I trained Penny when we, because we got her as a, a, a puppy, to come to a certain whistle. So I, I have this one whistle that I, you know, when I make that noise, she just immediately, she just books it wherever she is in the yard or in the house. She just comes right to me. Why does she do that? Because I always give her her favorite treat. Penny's incredibly loyal to that treat. I mean, it is like her world, right? She can't worship because she's not a human, but if she could, she'd worship those treats. I think of my son, my, my 10-year-old, and, uh, you know, he's got a gaming system that he absolutely loves. And I know, like, if I need to discipline him, just take that away. That is the thing he's the most loyal to, right? We all have things we're loyal to. And by the way, there's nothing evil or wrong with liking a gaming system. I mean, I'm very loyal to Toyota Land Cruisers. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? But the question in your life is, like, what are you most loyal to? That tells you what you value. 
Obviously, as much as I'm loyal to Toyota Land Cruisers, there's a a hierarchy. There are higher things. I'm more loyal to my wife than to Toyota Land Cruisers. So, (laughs) point is this. If you're not sure what you're worshiping, ask yourself these questions. What are you loyal to? What do you really respect? And what do you fear? Or fear in a, you know, that thing has a lot of power kind of way. What are you loyal to? What do you respect? What do you fear? Now, here's what I've noticed with my kids as they get older. Sometimes they'll be good just because they know if they're not good, I'm going to take away the things that they're loyal to and respect and fear, their device or their favorite show. And they're getting old enough now that I'll have times where I know like they're only obeying me because they don't want to lose this stuff, right? Parents know what I'm talking about. There are other times, sweet moments, when I realize, wow, right now they're doing the right thing because they love me, because they're actually loyal to me in our relationship. And by the way, it's normal in parenting that there's both of those, okay? Now, here's the thing. As a parent, which one do you most want your kid to be motivated by? Like, my kid's only doing the right thing so they can get stuff from me, get another 20 or get whatever, whatever age they're at, or they do the right thing because we have a relationship and they respect me and and they're loyal to me. Now, here's my question for you. Which one do you think your Father in Heaven wants from you? Right? Of course, He wants you to be doing the right stuff because you love Him, not just for what you can get from Him. Now, just like my elementary age kids, he loves you unconditionally, right? When you're going through a season of immature Christianity where you're like, I'm only doing the right stuff so I can get from you, God, he still loves you unconditionally. But think of how much it ministers to him, how much it means to him as an emotional being when you say, I'm going to do the right thing just because I love you. And even if I don't get the stuff that I want, I'm still going to love you. You know what I'm describing is the difference between a transaction, a business deal, and a relationship, right? Because in our business deals, it's like, well, if Sprint doesn't have enough good enough service or Verizon can give me a better rate, I'm gone like that, right? We have been bred from the time we're born to be consumers, and all of our relationships are if-then. If you give me these things, then I'll go there. And we even do it with church, right? If the church does everything the way I like, then I'll go there. But the minute they don't, I'm going to go find another one. And we just see people cycle through. Me and the other pastors talk about it. You know, it's just hilarious. Like this little merry-go-round because we're consumers. But God says that is treating, and I don't just mean church, but I mean your relationship with God. If you say, God, if you give me everything I want, then I'll be loyal to you. You're treating him like a business transaction. He says, I want you to treat me like a relationship for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. Say, I'm loyal to you, God, even if you don't give the miracle that I'm asking for. Now, here's the thing. As you prioritize Christ, as you make that choice, you will encounter spiritual warfare. I mean, I described it in my life. Not not every sickness ever is spiritual warfare, but I I do believe if I had stayed in journalism and was living a, a, a much easier, less stressful life, that I wouldn't have gone through those health things. It's not always that dramatic, but as you prioritize Christ, as we as a church say, we're going to follow Christ, we're going to do bold things for the kingdom of God, there will be spiritual warfare. And you don't live afraid of it, but you live aware of it. 
Because really what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego went through, it wasn't just an egotistical ruler having a bad day. That was a spiritual encounter. Were they going to worship God or were they going to worship Nebuchadnezzar? And here's what we learned from them. No matter what weapons Satan might unleash on you, you can be confident that Christ is with you in the fire. Right? When you're the one person who says, I'm going to do what's right, and you feel alone, he's with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's closer than a brother. He will be with you. And even if it means 50 years in a wheelchair, he's with you. And he's with you, and you just remind yourself, I'm, I'm on the tram. <laughs> I'm on the tram in this marriage. I'm on the tram in this body. I'm on the tram in this job. I'm going to pray believing God can do a miracle, and I'm going to ask him to, but I'm going to decide that even if he doesn't, I'm going to be loyal to him, and I know he'll be with me in the fire. Here's the other thing you can be confident of. Christ will prevail. In other words, it is temporary. The tram will get to the gates eventually, and the gates will open because you've placed your faith in Christ, and every tear will be wiped away, and there will be no more sickness there will be no more death. About 400 years ago, there was a guy named Martin Luther. You've heard of Martin Luther King Jr. He's named after Martin Luther, the original. Martin Luther King Jr., one of my great, great heroes, actually has an amazing sermon on Daniel chapter 3. You know, he's the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And in that sermon, he said this, the ultimate test of one's faith is their ability to say, but if not, which is the older translation of even if he doesn't. Uh, it's a great sermon. I'll post it on my social media later today. Uh, you can listen to Martin Luther King himself preach for 30 minutes on Daniel 3, and his whole point is exactly what we've learned today. The mature faith says, God, even if you don't, right? This coming from a man who ends up giving his life for the principles of God's word, says, even if you don't, I know there's an eternal life. As I mentioned, he's named after this other guy, Martin Luther, who lived about 400 years ago. Both of them modeled their lives after Daniel chapter 3. Both of them said, even if the government arrests me, even if physically they harm me, even if they kill me, I will worship God and I will be loyal to him no matter what. Now, this Martin Luther was a priest, and he was a priest in a church that had these big fancy buildings and lots of real estate and political power, and the church had become corrupted, it had become impure. And he read the Word of God for himself, and he nailed these 95 corrections to the door of the church, saying these are 95 ways that we've totally veered off course, we've got to get back to the Word of God, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by us paying money to the church or doing fancy things. He ends up getting arrested. He ends up getting dragged in front of this court at this, quote, church, where they're going to decide to burn him alive. And Martin Luther, who stood for God in the face of death, wrote a hymn called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And as you decide to choose God in your very private matter or in a very public matter, I want to just give you these words written a few hundred years ago by Martin Luther in the final verses. He says, though this world with devils filled, right? We live in a world that is corrupted by sin. Satan and his unseen forces are here. Should threaten to undo us. We will not fear for God has willed 
his truth to triumph through us. In other words, I know this is temporary, and I'm going to stand with God's truth no matter what. And then he says this, let goods, that is possessions, all the stuff we own, and kindred, the people we love, if Satan takes those away from me, that's fine. If he takes my very life away from me, that's fine. This body they may kill, God's truth abides or remains still. His kingdom is forever. That's the kingdom that we're living for. Wherever you're choosing, will I worship God or not, it's worth it. Choose him. Declare that he can do a miracle. Decide, even if he doesn't, I'm going to worship him anyway. Let me pray that for you right now. Father, you have given to us today a difficult truth. This is not an easy one for us to apply. You see our frames that we're weak, and we struggle when it hurts to follow you. We struggle when it's embarrassing or painful, when it costs us. But God, that's where our faith is revealed. And I just want to pray for every person here and every person listening to this message that in this moment, would you inject faith into our hearts? Would you make us like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we would choose, that we would declare, God, I know you can do a miracle in this situation. You can heal the marriage. You can heal the body. You can provide the resources. You can turn the heart of that person. I know you can do a miracle, and I'm going to keep asking you to do one. And for every one of us on our battlefield of the will, we acknowledge, God, you're bigger than this situation, but we also decide that even if you don't, even if you don't, we worship you. We choose you. We know your kingdom is bigger. We know you win in the end. And we've chosen our side and it's with you. So be with us in the flames. Carry us to the gates where we'll taste and see the victory you've earned for us at the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.